This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So please let yourself be settled and listen for a time in a way that's easy and gracious. No need to remember any of it, no quiz at the end. Um, if it touches something that you know to be true in yourself, then it's, then it's a value and the rest you can let go. So it's a beautiful autumn, almost winter night out there. Wasn't it great to have a rainstorm finally? And the land and the deer and the animals and the plants are just so happy as we are to have this moisture that we've needed for so long. And it's also this turning of the seasons. In a week we'll be at the winter solstice. Um, so it's the holiday time. It's Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. And actually in Islam it's also the holiday that celebrates the birth of the Prophet at this time. Everybody in different parts of the world, this is Northern Hemisphere, you get it in the Southern Hemisphere the other time of the year, but there is something archetypal and deep in us as human beings um, to notice that it gets darker and darker and darker. And then there's a day when it turns and the light starts to come back again, if we're good, right? <laughs> and fortunate. And um, my teacher, Ajahn Chah, uh, after some years after I was there, there started to be and, and a couple of other friends who, who started with him in the in the 1960s. There started to be a group of 
other Westerners who came to study with him because he was a very wise and and kind of remarkable teacher. Um, and and so he decided after about five years to open a monastery that was um, for Westerners alone where the language was in English because a lot of people came who weren't able to understand the Lao and Thai local languages. So they found a village nearby that was interested and they built this beautiful kind of bamboo monastery in the forest for these people, little huts and a place to meet. And then after a couple of years, just around this time of year, in the main hall of that new little forest monastery, some of the monks put up a Christmas tree. This disturbed the villagers who went to complain to Ajahn Chah after a bit, and they said, here we cut the bamboo and built these buildings and we feed them, we give them food in their alms bowl every morning, we care for them, and we thought they were becoming Buddhists, and now they put a Christmas tree in, in, in the meditation hall, and um, what's going on here? So Ajahn Chah said, mm, we should we should do something about this. So he called the monks over and the villagers and had, the, had a kind of meeting the way um, one might. And he, he listened to the villagers again. They recited their concerns. And then he asked the monks and nuns from the West who were there, he said, I want to understand what this holiday means. Um, and they talked about it a little bit. And he listened and he said, oh, it's a holiday of generosity where people are giving to one another. It's a holiday of care and compassion. Mm. It's a holiday of renewal. Mm. It's a holiday of moving from selfishness to selflessness. He listened. He, he said, all right. He said to the villagers, you're right. They shouldn't be celebrating Christmas. How about if we call it Chris Budimus? <laughs> and they have been celebrating it ever since there in that particular monastery. It is, um, it's a wonderful thing to be able to come and sit and meditate as we have in this dark evening with the stars that are here and the air so clear after the rain. And part of the ability to come and sit and meditate um, is not just to have some particular meditative experience, but to let us quiet the mind, open the heart, and sense the vast silence, the turning of the seasons and the turning of the world um, that we're woven into, that we're a part of. And that sometimes we forget, only on occasion, when we're busy doing our errands and checking the lists and getting our shopping done and all those. It somehow gives us a space to remember something bigger that um, is both mysterious and wonderful. Um, and it's that which reconnects us both with the mystery of the world and, and with one another. And I have a real appreciation for you who've come tonight and over these 30 plus years of this class at Spirit Rock um, for the sincerity of people who come. Um, and I hear over and over again how the teachings of the Dharma, the teachings of mindfulness, the teachings of compassion and loving-kindness, of forgiveness, of um, inner transformation, change people's lives. People come up to me or they write letters and a woman wrote and said she was moving her parents from their home 
um, uh, where they'd lived for 60 some years. Her parents were now 91 and 92 and they needed to be moved into assisted living and it was really hard for the parents and hard for her. And not only that, you know how these things go, she was in conflict with her siblings, some who wanted the move, some who didn't, the stuff, what do we do with that? What, you know how all that fam, that's why they call it nuclear family, by the way, but that's just a little. <clears throat> but anyway, she said, I went out after a day of struggling with them and all the stuff and my siblings, and I just sat on a hillside quiet, and I did my meditation practice. And I could feel the inner agitation from others and the fear of my parents of something new and all of that. And I just stayed with it with mindfulness and compassion for everybody. Everybody was struggling. Everybody was afraid something new was about to happen. She said, and as I got quieter and more peaceful, I realized I could go back into that situation and I could be the one that carried that place of understanding and peace that everybody really needed. And she said, thank you you know, to the Dharma, thank you for these practices and teachings. Or I get notes from people who are in the middle of a health crisis or their partner or someone in their family is, and they say, nothing has helped me more than knowing how to steady myself. Otherwise, I would be lost in, you know, the fears of what about this cancer or what about this progressing. And I would lose my life because I'm not here. And I realize that the only place that actually can be alive is here and now. And these are the practices that let me do this. <clears throat> when I traveled in Burma last year with, uh, together with my partner Trudy and with uh, this foundation, the Foundation for People of Burma that, I was par that I'm a part of, we met with Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize winner who's now become elected, or her party has in Burma as the new uh, government. And she had been under house arrest and in prison um, over the course of 17 years. And she said, if I didn't have meditation practice, I don't know what I would have done. But because I had it, she said, they never really had me in prison because I wouldn't hate them. And because I wouldn't hate them, I didn't feel like I was under their power at all. And she came out with such graciousness and clarity and and uh, generosity of spirit after all. Imagine 17 years where she wasn't allowed to be with her children when they graduated college. She wasn't allowed to be with her husband when he died. And still she kept that steadiness. And she said, it was this training in mindfulness and compassion and loving kindness that got me through it all. So I both appreciate the sincerity of everyone who we join in practicing together and the fruits of it in our lives. And of course, the mystery of this practice and really of a spiritual path is that it's not so much focused on self-improvement, although you can learn to find an inner equanimity or balance. You can deepen a sense of steadiness and resilience and so forth. But it's not really about perfecting yourself. You've already tried that, as we talk about in previous weeks. Therapy, going to the gym, doing a diet, you know, all that stuff. And, it, you know, it only half worked, as you can see. Um, it's not about perfecting yourself. Um, 
it's much more about perfecting your love and perfecting a love for this human life that you have been given this this remarkable life um, and how you enter it and how you um, move through it and um, I was given recently I thought I had it with me but I can't find it a book of some of the uh, sayings or teachings from Mother Teresa um, and in one part of it she talks about how um, the most important thing that she and the sisters of the missions missionaries of charity can do to give to a person um, is to respect their dignity. She said whether you're a homeless person on the street who's dying and we help or whether you're an orphan or whether you're somebody who's come from you know a very wealthy country and wants to serve and help she said it doesn't matter who this being is who comes we're all hungry for respect and we're all hungry to have to be treated with a, a kind of respect and dignity that is um, the birthright of every being who is born here. And so again, meditation isn't so much to make something happen, although you can learn beautiful techniques and practices to develop loving kindness or compassion or to steady your attention and be balanced with mindfulness. But not in order to become a mindful person um, more than that. Um, to treat yourself and all that you touch with the spirit of respect and dignity and uh, care. Um, to see the sacredness of life. Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic, calls it seeing the secret beauty of every being you meet behind these eyes. Um, you know, is a, is a secret beauty that was born into every single being. And we'll talk more about it this evening. And he says, if only we could see each other that way, there'd be no more need for war or cruelty or greed. The big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. But we see the beauty in one another, and when we start to pay attention with mindfulness, we also can see the illusion of separateness, what's called the small sense of self or the body of fear, what interferes with us seeing each other with the eyes of love and the eyes of understanding. In uh, Alice Walker's writings, she has a moment where she writes, um, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, and it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed, and I cried, and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. And there's some way which we all know this. We've had moments walking in the high mountains, or listening to an amazing piece of music, or making love, or being there at the birth of a child, or the mysterious moment of death, where the spirit leaves this body or some other extraordinary times, or maybe ordinary times, crossing the Golden Gate Bridge and watching the sweep of fog come in and realizing we're in the city of St. Francis, you know, the beloved city of St. Francis. Um, so something in us knows that we're connected to the vastness of the world. And to meditate, more than anything, is an invitation to remember to quiet ourselves, to touch back into this 
truth or this reality beyond the busyness or the fears or the confusion that we also have because we're humans. We have the tainted glory of humanity. Now there's a kind of a, well, there's a very simple expression that Zen Master Suzuki wrote, she used to describe the paradox of spiritual practice in which he says, said to his students, you're perfect just the way you are. And everyone went, ah, how nice, you know, so much love and dignity and appreciation. But then the rest of the phrase goes, you're perfect just the way you are, and there's still room for improvement, you know. (laughs) And both of those are true. Meditation isn't, and spiritual practice, isn't meant to be a grim duty. It's meant to be a rediscovery of the love and the beauty, the secret beauty that's in you. One of my favorite holiday stories. This story took place, and it's part of the National Story Project, in the 1930s in Seattle, and told by this fellow's grandfather, who was the oldest of six brothers and a sister. The family finances uh, were terrible during the Depression. My father's business had collapsed. Jobs were non-existent. Um, The country was suffering. We had a tree for Christmas, but this year, no presents. We simply couldn't afford them. And on Christmas Eve, we all went to bed in pretty low spirits. Unbelievably, when we woke up on Christmas morning, there was a mound of presents under the tree. We tried to control ourselves at breakfast, but we rushed through the meal in record time. And then the fun began. My mother went first. We surrounded her in anticipation, and she opened the package and saw she'd been given an old shawl that she'd misplaced several months earlier, now stitched together properly. My father got an old axe with a repaired handle. My sister got her old slippers. One of the boys got a newly washed pair of patched trousers. I got a hat, the same hat I thought I'd left in a restaurant back in November. Each old cast-off came as a total surprise. Before long, we were laughing so hard we could barely pull the strings on the next package. But from where had this largesse come? It was my brother Morris. For several months, he'd been secreting away old things or broken things he knew we wouldn't miss too much. And then on Christmas Eve, after everyone else had gone to bed, he'd quietly wrapped the presents and placed them under the tree. I remember this as the finest Christmas we ever had. So there's something in spiritual life that's not about gaining or changing ourselves. It's called fruition practice or resultant practice. Um, It's owning with gratitude the, the fact that we are here and that we're beautiful and that others are and that we get to live this human incarnation. And your job, then, is to be fully present for your life with its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. It's not to get something where you have enough. I mean, if anything, it's time to give some of that stuff away. You know that's true. Um, But it's to understand that actually what you most deeply long for is who you are, is coming back to your own heart, to your own 
beauty, your own well-being that you were born with to that secret beauty. Now that being said, you're perfect just the way you are. There's that other little phrase, and there's still room for improvement. And so the other part of the practice that we do together or that we share in different ways, mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness, forgiveness, and so forth, is watering the seeds of goodness that are there in each of us. And of course, in all the many studies in the last couple of decades of modern neuroscience, it's begun to wildly study mindfulness and compassion and all these kinds of things. Um, the main discovery in neuroplasticity of these last decades is that inner strengths and inner capacities can be developed. They can grow, they can be trained. And so we can train in presence. We can train ourselves in steadiness. We can train ourselves to respond with clarity. We can train ourselves in a kind of balance or equanimity that allows the joys and sorrows of life and meets them with a dignity, a dignity for ourselves and that we offer to others. And as we begin to develop or tune into or cultivate or remember the capacities of mindfulness and presence, there grows out of it what are called the dimensions of your own Buddha nature. They start to flower. Your generosity grows deeper because it's easy for you to give things away and care for others when you feel whole in yourself. Your patience grows because there's only now anyway. I mean, where are we going? Your clarity grows. Your integrity gets deeper because, as I've said in other evenings, it's really hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It doesn't work very well, and you start to realize, hey, this is not actually the path that I want to be on, you know? Your dedication works more fully because you find something that really brings meaning into your life, your compassion. And the sense of trust grows. Not trust that you're not going to grow old and die and that bad things won't happen. You will grow old and you will die, as will the people around you. That's part of the turning of the seasons as much as this moment before winter solstice. Um, but then how will you live, given this limited, mysterious human incarnation? I mean, that's part of what makes it so mysterious is that it's not forever. It's pretty wild, isn't it? And then what does that understanding, that wisdom really do to inform us? There grows with wisdom a sense of trust that you are part of something bigger. As the Ojibwe, famous Ojibwe saying goes, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. Or the poet Pablo Neruda who writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There is in you a, a life spirit that was born um, and that exists in this incarnation, in this life, but it's not limited to your body. It's a spirit that's beyond that, that was free for Aung San Suu Kyi, even though they, put her, they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. 
No one can take this from you. And so you begin to tune in as you quiet the mind and open the heart to something that's beyond the small sense of self and the body of fear. And you start maybe by just bringing the mind and body together instead of having the mind be in the past and the future and worries and plans and remembering and so forth. And it makes space to see your life, to see the small sense of self and the fears that we all have and the ideas and confusion. And also to recognize that there is a space of awareness, of loving awareness, that can acknowledge and bow to what's present and say, oh yeah, this is fear and this is confusion and this is longing and this is love and this is joy and this is mm, conflict. And say, this is part of the ride of being a human being. And somehow you are bigger than all of that. You are the loving awareness itself. And you enter the stream of wisdom of that kind of inner freedom. Or to use another language of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, you want to look at the ills of the, of the world or of your own life, and you can see that suffering is the result of greed and hatred and ignorance. And if we look around the warfare and the racism and the um, conflicts and the environmental destruction are the result of greed and of hatred and of ignorance. But those are not the only human possibility. When we recognize that those are the cause of suffering, it also becomes possible for us to turn the heart and mind to these other human dimensions instead of hatred, we can learn to manifest and bring into the world love. Instead of ignorance and delusion, we can bring clarity and understanding between humans, between species, between all of life. Instead of greed, we can bring into the world generosity and gratitude for life. And you know this in your own life. You can live that. You can develop it and turn toward it. And if we look, all of the ecological problems and all of the modern dilemmas caused by humanity have their roots in, these, in the human heart. And therefore, the good news is that they also can be transformed. And it's our time to do it as a species. It's time for you individually, of course, but as I've talked about many, many times, um, no amount of outer development of nanotechnology and computers and internet and biotechnology and space technology and all this amazing stuff is going to stop continuing warfare or environmental destruction or racism or tribalism. The outer developments of humanity that we benefit from and celebrate rightfully now need to be matched by the inner developments of humanity. That's our curriculum as humans. And it's in your good hands and in your hearts. And the beautiful thing, the kind of sincerity that I see in people, um, certainly who come here, is that we know this. We already know this. We recognize this in our heart. And so it's a gift for us in our own lives.
and it's a gift that we bring back to the world. In Zen, they say that there are only two things. You sit and sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So you take the time to quiet the mind, open the heart, remember your interconnection with life, remember what really matters to you. In the end, what matters? Did I love well? Did I give my gifts to the world? And then you get up from your sitting and you pick up the broom, you know, and you sweep. And as Martin Luther King said, if a man sweeps streets for a living or a woman, um, they should sweep as Michelangelo painted, as Beethoven composed music, as Shakespeare wrote his plays, with that kind of care and dignity to take that to whatever it is that you do and tend this beautiful world and serve it. To tend the hungry, feed the hungry, to tend those who are cold, those who are in need. As um, Ramdas's teacher, Neem Karoli Babas, said when Ramdas said, how do I get enlightened? And Neem Karoli Baba looked back and he said, love people and feed them. Ramdas said, yeah, what about enlightenment? And he said, love people and feed them. So you sit and you sweep the garden. This is Puanani a Hawaiian teacher, she writes, one of the processes I use to help people talk to each other and build community is an exercise where people tell three, three stories. The first is the story of all your names. The second is the story of your community. And the third story I ask is to tell the story of your gift. One time I did this with a group in our local high school. We went around the circle and got to this young man, Kele. He told the story of his names well and the stories of his community. But when it came time to tell the story of his gift, he asked, what, miss? What kind of gift you think I get, eh? I stay in this special ed class and I get a hard time reading and I cannot do the math. And why you make me ashamed for Ask me that kind of question. What kind of gift you have? If I had gift, you think I'd be in this class? Kaylee just shut down and shut up, and I felt shamed. All the time I've ever done that, I've never, never meant to shame anyone. Two weeks later, I'm in the local grocery store, and I see him down one of those aisles, and I see his back, and I'm going down there with my cart, and I think, nope, I'm not going there. And I turn around as fast as I can, and then he turns around, and he sees me, and he throws his arms open, and he says, Auntie, I've been thinking about you, you know. Two weeks I've been thinking, what my gift, what my gift? And I say, okay, brother, what your gift? And he says, you know, I've been thinking, I cannot do that math stuff, and I cannot read so good, but auntie, when I go in the ocean, I can call the fish, and the fish he comes every time. And every time I can put food on my family's table, every time. And sometimes when I stay in the ocean and the shark, he come, and he look at me and I look at him, and I tell him, uncle, I'm not going to take plenty fish. I'm just going to take one, two fish just for my family. All the rest I leave for you. And so the shark, he say, okay, you cool, brother. <laughs> and I tell the shark, uncle, you cool. And the shark, he go his way and I go mine. <laughs> and I look at this boy, Kele, 
and I know what a genius he is. But in our society, the way the schools are run, he's rubbish. He's destroyed, not appreciated. So when I talk to his teacher and the principal of the school, I ask them, what would his life be like if this curriculum were gift-based? If we were able to see the gift in each of our children and taught them around their gifts? What would happen if our community was gift-based? If we really understood what the gift of each member of our community was and really began to support them in that. And so, of course, that's for him. But you sit and you sweep the garden and you bring your particular gifts. And it might be to make a garden or raise beautiful children, you know, or fight for justice, or it might be to work in healing or medicine or build a conscious business or be an artist or a dancer. I don't know what your gift is. But when you get up from that quiet mind and open heart, what else really what else really is your life for? What else really nourishes the heart but to be able to give somehow to give your gift? I talked about it maybe it was last month or sometime. I've been away on sabbatical, so not teaching here so recently. But my friend Maladoma Somme, the West African shaman and medicine man. He uses a West African metaphor. He said, everybody who's born into a human incarnation comes with a certain cargo. I like this image. And your task is to deliver your cargo. <laughs> and your cargo is really your gift. And when you understand this, um, then it's not so much about being generous as just offering yourself to the world and receiving as well. Because I was spending time with Ramdas recently in Hawaii, you know, and he talked about this. He said, you know, I went around the world teaching for a long time and then we started the Seba Foundation, which just celebrated 20-some years of doing um, eye surgeries to restore sight to people who were blind in Nepal and India and Africa and various places. They just celebrated their four millionth eye surgery, four million people who are blind who can now see. He said, and that was just a wonderful thing to do with my life. But then I had this major stroke, and now I'm in a wheelchair and I can't move one arm and I have trouble speaking some aphasia. He said, and people have to pick me up and move me and wipe my bottom. He said, and I'll tell you, going around the world, taking care of everybody and giving to all these people, that was easy compared to letting people take care of you. So there's also something about letting yourself being taken care of. And in that book of Mother Teresa's, she writes about a beggar who came up to her and said, Mother, I want to give you, and took these paisa, you know, small coins out of the hem of his or her, you know, shawl and said, I want to give you this gift. And she said, I don't know whether I should take the gift or not. In my mind, she said, I, I thought, if I take this man's or this woman's money, um, that might be their food money for the next two days. Should I take it? And I stood there and then I said, who am I to judge? It's so beautifully offered. She said, and I said, yes, thank you. And they said, 
give this to others who are hungry. She said, and when I saw the brightness in that person's eyes, that they too were able to offer something and give something, she said it was probably the, the best gift that I could ever receive to allow this to happen and the best gift that they could do. We've got all the politics now telling us to be terrified. I sure hope you're not believing that rubbish. I mean, uh, the great political commentator of a hundred years ago, H.L. Mencken, said the whole aim of politics is to uh, scare and terrify the population, creating all kinds of imaginary hobgoblins that then um, get people to vote out of fear for those who are looking for power. Um, and you know that's how it works, really. The likelihood that you will die in a terrorist attack in America, even if there, there will be another one, I mean, that's going to happen at some point, is probably about the same as being eaten by a shark, basically. Um, it's true, just numerically and statistically. Um, and it's one one-thousandth of, or one ten-thousandth or something like that, of the danger of just going out on the highways in Christmas season with all those other drivers. You know, if you want to be terrified, um, <laughs> don't drive on New Year's Eve. Right. Um, how are we going to respond to this? Are we going to let the terrorists set the agenda for our hearts? Are we going to let the terror inside? Or are we as individuals and are we as a society going to say, our response to this is not just going to be a, some military response, um, but we're going to take 10% of our military budget, let's say, you know, 50 or $100 billion a year. <laughs> and in the next five years join with other countries and feed every hungry child on earth, you know, and give clean water to every village on earth. Um, then we would be, what's the line from Langston Hughes? He writes, let America be America again, the America she never was. Um, then we would be something that exists in some way in the imagination of the world or that used to and still does somewhere that there's something, that there's some greatness in the spirit of this country or the spirit of what it was born out of. And so instead of making others them and them and them, um, we become an island of uh, generosity. We become the seed planters of the world. We become a force of connection and love. Um, it's really the only force that meets the force of terror and violence and that can match it is the force of love. Nothing else is close. Hmm. Another Christmas story for you. Again, Christmas morning, 1952. So these are old stories, but they're, they're relatively recent in the National Story Project. A light drizzle was falling as my sister Jill and I ran out of the church eager to get home and play with the presents Sand had left for us and our baby sister Sharon. 
Across the street from the church was a Pan Am gas station where the Greyhound bus stopped. It was closed for Christmas, but I noticed a family standing outside the locked door, huddled under the narrow overhang in an attempt to keep dry. I wondered why they were there, but then forgot it. Once we got home, there was barely time to enjoy our presents. We had to go off to grandparents' house for Christmas dinner, and as we drove through the high, down the highway through town, I noticed the family was still there standing outside the closed gas station. My father was driving very slowly now. The closer he got to the turnoff from my grandparents' house, the slower the car went. Suddenly he U-turned and said, I can't stand it. What? asked my mother. It's those people back there at the Pan Am station standing in the rain, waiting for the bus. They've got children. It's Christmas. When my father pulled into the service station, I saw there were five of them, the parents and three children, two girls and a small boy. My father rolled down his window. Merry Christmas, he said. Howdy, the man replied. He was very tall and had to stoop slightly to peer into the car. Jill, Sharon, and I stared at the children, and they stared back at us. Waiting on the bus, my father asked. Man said they were. They were going to Birmingham, where he had a brother and prospects of a job. Well, that bus isn't going to come along for several hours, and you're getting wet standing there. Windborne's just a couple miles up the road. They've got a shed with a cover there and some benches, my father said. Why don't you all get in the car, and I'll run you up there. The man thought about it for a moment, beckoned to his family, and they climbed in the car. They had no luggage, only the clothes they were wearing. <laughs> Once they settled in, my father looked back over his shoulders and asked the children if Santa had found them yet. Three glum faces mutely gave his answer. Well, I didn't think so, said my father, winking at my mother, because when I saw Santa this morning, he told me he was having trouble finding you all, and he asked me if he could leave your toys at my house. We'll just go to get them there before I take you to the bus stop. All at once, the three children's face lit up, and they began to bounce around in the back seat, laughing and chattering. When we got out of the car at our house, the three children ran through the front door straight to the toys that were spread out under the tree. One of the girls spied Jill's doll and immediately hugged it to her breast. I remember that the little boy grabbed Sharon's ball and the other little girl picked up something of mine. All this happened a long time ago, but the memory of it remains clear. That was the Christmas when my sisters and I learned the joy of making others happy. My mother noticed that the middle child was wearing a short-sleeved dress, so she gave the girl Jill's only sweater to wear. My father invited them to join our grandparents' Christmas dinner, but they refused. Back in the car on the way to Winburn, my father asked the man if he had money for bus fare. His brother had sent tickets, the man said. So my father reached in his pocket and pulled out five dollars, which is what he had left till next payday, and pressed the money into the man's hand. The man tried to give it back, but my father insisted. It'll be late when you get to Birmingham, and these children will be hungry before then. Take it. I've been broke before. I know what it's like when you can't feed your family. We left them there at the bus stop in Winborn. As we drove away, I watched out the window as long as I could, looking back at the little girl hugging her new doll. So how do we respond to this world? You sit and you sweep the garden. 
and you have the capacity as a human being incarnated in this life with the measure of suffering you have and with the beauty that you have in your life to respond in all kinds of extraordinary ways. And I'd like us to end the evening with a very simple chant. And the chant is this, in, in Sanskrit, in, in India when you meet a person, um, you put your hands together and the greeting is namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. And the root of the word namaste is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects to. And I'd like us to chant namo nine times and then go out into this glorious, beautiful, dark evening. All right, so here's our chant together as a way to end the evening, and I thank you for your, for your being here. Namo nine times. And think of it as a blessing that you offer to yourself, to others, and to, the, to the, everyone in this room and out across the world. Namo 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 Add harmony Namo 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 One more na mo and may your holidays and the turnings of the seasons bring new light bring great love and wisdom and understanding into your life to all you touch and across this beautiful blue green globe Thank you. Good night.